Hello, and welcome back to the Ice World podcast. I'm your host, Nadia. It's been a while since we sailed down on the James Clark Ross together, and I'm really excited to present to you a new series of interviews with my wintering crew from Rother Research Station. This first podcast will start off with Louis Day, who was the boating officer at Rother Research Station, which he often refers to himself as a boaty. I really enjoyed my conversation with Louis and as you can hear he's got lots of ideas and dreams and aspirations from a young person which is really really exciting. I hope you enjoy this episode which marks the start of a new Rotherer series. Hello Louis. Hello Nadia. Would you like to introduce yourself, tell me what brought you to Antarctica and what is it that you do here? I run the boating operations out of Rotherer Research Station which is where we are. The vast majority of the science that we do here is marine science and to do that requires boats. Do you enjoy running the boating operations? I do enjoy running the boating operations. It's good fun. You are only 21. Yes. Millennial, the first millennial that has ever come to Antarctica. I've heard that, yeah. As a wintering member. Tell me about your background. How did you get into boating and what do you do at home? I grew up in boats. So my dad had a boat growing up when he was a kid. So my granddad had a boat and he taught my dad how to boat. And then my dad had a boat when I grew up. So my dad taught me. So I've been on boats from a very young age for literally as long as I can remember. So the boat that we used to have, we used to keep up the Limington River, which is not far from where I used to live. And it was it was cool because there was no electronic nav on it whatsoever. So there's no GPS, no chart plotter, no depth gauge. Everything was old school nav. So just outside Limington River, there's very old, very shallow saltwater marshes. So all of the nav we used to do was always old school. So it was always you check the weather before you go, you check the tides, your depth gauge is a stick. You can tell it's shadowed by the, the mud getting kicked up behind the boat, that kind of stuff. So it's very similar wow. to what we do here. So yeah, I was doing that from a very young age, literally from as long as I can remember. And it was all old school. So then when I left school and got an apprenticeship and started doing all these courses properly, and then we moved on to boats with electronic nav, chart plotters, depth gauges, that kind of thing, compared to what I've been doing since I was a very young kid. It was quite easy. Did you keep the old methods? I I always relied on it. This is the nice thing about doing these courses because you learn all these new methods, but you always kind of subconsciously back them up with the old school methods that I'd learned growing up with my dad. And then coming down here, actually, it was a complete role reversal flip back to what it was like as a kid because we don't have charts down here. We survey the water as we go. We record the data. We do have depth gauges, but most of the time you're using a bog chisel or a stick to kind of prod yourself off rocks and to work out how deep it is. You go on the courses, you learn the new methods and you learn the new modern way of doing things and you learn them and you rely on them mainly. I tried to keep up the old school methods that I'd learned as a kid, but then coming here, it's just, yeah, like I said, a complete flip back to reality. Like a way of reverting yeah, exactly. back, back to your roots. What expectations did you have coming to Rothera? Honestly, I didn't know what to expect at at all. I was very lucky that I actually knew a guy, a good friend of mine, Richie, did the summer boaty role back in 2017. So I did my powerboat instructors course with him and we got quite close on that course and we kept in contact afterwards. And then about six months after that course, he came down here for a summer and did this job. So the only reason I knew about Bass at all from the start was because I was friends with him and saw him come down and do it. So I think I had a, a fairly good idea of what to expect when I got down here, which obviously helped a lot when it came to SAR. SAR is search and recovery. And that's an extra responsibility that we have during the summer. So essentially we're providing safety cover for aeroplanes that are coming into the station. And if you put it very simply, it sounds very exciting. But the reality is you sit there and watch planes take off and land for a while. Because our runway basically extends over a body of water and there's a cove at either end. So yeah, we sit with the boat on the crane 
dressed into our boat suits, essentially ready to launch the boat and go and rescue them if something were to happen, which it hasn't so far on touch wood, it won't. Uh, but yeah, we're, we're always there just in case always every time prepared. a plane lands. You had an idea of what to expect, but nevertheless, what personal challenges have you encountered since being here? Everything's difficult down here. <laughs> like everything yes. is difficult well like the other day we went out on the boat and we spent just under three hours mm. digging the boat shed out of snow to then drag the boat to the wharf to then launch the boat and spend two and a half three hours on the water freezing cold um so yeah everything's difficult even from you know you dig your way out of the accommodation building you're in to then traipse in thigh deep snow to work to then dig yourself into work to then dig yourself out again to go for lunch and in the summer you've got 24 hours daylight which is difficult on its own and then come winter you've got 20 hours of darkness followed by four hours of twilight the sun doesn't come across the horizon you've just got enough light to it's just like a depressing gloomy light which might as well not bothered and just want you to go back to bed so yeah it's difficult everything's difficult but the sun has come back actually last week and being the youngest member of our wintering team what did you do for our sun up ceremony so there's a tradition where the oldest person takes the union flag down from our flagpole up at the top of the hill at the start of winter, and then the youngest person puts the flag back up. So I wrote a speech, where it's kind of half speech, half poem, and read it aloud to everyone, and then raised the union flag for the summer, which is really cool. And it is really cool to see it out in South Cove when we're on the water, to just look up at the flag flying proudly against beautiful clouds. Yeah, it's pretty, pretty it, And I put it there. There. Second time lucky. It's quite nice to look at it. Yeah, so what happened the first time? Uh, well, we lost the shackle for the pin, or the pin for the shackle. So we had to cable tie the shackle together. And then we put it up, and then we decided that we'd give it a test shake to make sure that it can withstand all the winds that we have here. And, and the test shake broke it, so we had to pull it down and fix it and put it back up again. Hopefully it's it will there. be there until the next oldest person of the next winter team takes it down. Yeah. What motivates you? So when I started my apprenticeship at 15, I was very lucky to work alongside some very inspirational and impressive people. And Callan, who was my mentor during my apprenticeship, I started working with him when I was 15. And then it was a four-year apprenticeship and I finished at 20. And during that time, the longest we were apart was, must have been for about two weeks when I went away on a cadet camp in the summer. So out of those four and a half, nearly five years, the longest we were apart was two, two weeks. He's such an impressive person. He's about six foot three, 18 stone of pure muscle, covered in tattoos. He's a doorman and an engineer. So he's a marine engineer. He's worked offshore. He's worked abroad. He's just got the most incredible stories. And having spent so long with him, he's just the most inspirational person. But then there was those of other inspirational people that I worked with, like Russ, who was another engineer that I worked with. He was in the army for years left the army, got into security, provided security for loads of celebrities up in London, all around the world. And like they would sit together and they would talk and they would tell stories and they would have the most incredible stories. And I would sit and listen to it and it it wasn't jealousy and it wasn't envy. I just, yeah, since I was about 15, I just wanted to be like them in some way. And I just wanted to be able to sit down with these incredible stories and not tell them to people to show off, but just to have the confidence you get from being that person with all these incredible stories. So what inspires me is I'm living it down here. Like me and you, just me and you, we've collected so many cool stories and we've been through so many stuff out there that is so difficult to explain. So yeah, what inspires me? Basically, I'm, in, I'm inspired by incredible people that I've worked with. And what motivates me is the fact that I'm actually now achieving stuff that I could imagine myself sitting and listening to them speak about. And I would love to sit and listen to them speak about their stories. And I can imagine them telling these stories. Yeah. So the fact that these are now my stories, I love. And how do you capture these stories? So I've got a diary which I've kept every day since I've been here. So we've been here literally just over eight months and I filled a diary and a half of stories and memories already. 
and writing. I love writing. From my diary, I take aspects of that diary and turn them into bigger stories and kind of type them out. And you've read a few. Even though I'm part of that story, when you have it in a written form, it kind of takes you into another world. You live it differently. I'm quite task focused when we're out on the boats, but you're paying so much attention to the detail and the environment and the surroundings. And what's your motivations with these short stories? What do you hope to achieve? I'd love one day to bring all these short stories together into a book. And you talked about that we lived these incredible, incredible adventures. Have you got a best memory that you could pick out? There's one story in particular which I love and I will be telling my dad every time I see him for the rest of my life. Go on. Um, so my dad's ex-Navy, so he was in the Navy for kind of 25 years, something crazy like that. Me and you were on the same boat. We were out doing a dive and HMS Protector was moored up against the wharf resupplying the station with fuel. And basically what we normally do is we normally provide a mooring team for the ships. So whether it's the Slave Attenborough or various other cargo ships that arrive on station, we as the Marine team drag other people from station and get them involved. And we provide a mooring team for the ship. Whereas HMS Protect is different. They provide their own mooring team. So they put their own team ashore to do their lines. And all we do really is supervise them. So normally what HMS Protector does is when they come to leaving, they leave and they leave their mooring team ashore. They then send a rib back to the wharf to pick the mooring team up and then take that rib back to the ship and then they leave. The problem on this day was we were out diving. So we were out in ribs in the conditions that they looked at, diving ourselves. They looked at the conditions and they said that they couldn't launch a rib in those conditions. And there was a big iceberg drifting towards the ship, so they needed to cast off and leave before the iceberg hit them. So basically they needed to go, but they didn't deem it safe enough to then launch a rib to pick their mooring team up. And it was the height of summer, so we didn't have enough beds on station to sleep all these extra people. So they needed to get back on the ship somehow. So rather than cast off with their team and then launch a rib to go and pick their team back up, they radioed us on the boats and said, can you provide us a cast off team? So we were like, yeah, absolutely. The problem is we are out on the water. It was brash ice that they didn't think they could drive the ribs through. So in order to get back to the wharf to cast you off, we need to drive our ribs through the brash ice that you can't drive your ribs through to then lift our boats out to then cast you off. So we did. We drove our boat back through brash ice that they couldn't drive through to then lift our boats out to then cast them off so they could escape an iceberg that was drifting towards them. And I remember, it's not strictly true and it's not true in the slightest, but I remember texting my dad that evening and telling him that I'd saved the senior service of the Royal Navy <laughs> from getting hit by an iceberg. I've got so many, but that's probably one of my favourite stories that I will definitely remind my dad of for years to come. Having that experience at the local area also is a massive part of it and that's what you've gained and I think it's quite easy to forget the experience that you accumulate here. No one ever drives through brash. Exactly. Uh, even like, you know, take HMS Protector that is always in Antarctica in the Southern Ocean. They don't drive through brash in ribs often. Whereas we're out in it every day. We know what we can drive through. We know what we can't drive through. Just get accustomed to it. Yes. What did you think when you first saw an iceberg and the water littered with brash being yeah. out in a tiny boat actually confronted with a real hazard in the water? I remember driving through brash for the first time and that was really weird. I've spent my whole life trying not to hit stuff in boats. And the worst sound you could possibly imagine is hitting something with a thin gel coat hull and then you find yourself driving through brash where you are physically barging your way through thousands of pieces of hard glacial ice and it's like knocking and thumping and bashing off the bow scraping along the hull to the stern it goes against everything you've ever possibly tried to do whilst on a boat so that was bizarre but then icebergs are just incredible you get them from car size up to cathedral size bergs that drift past and they are just phenomenal like every shade of blue you could possibly imagine through them from the you know, most beautiful turquoise up to pretty much pure black just everything and seeing the foot of the iceberg, if we're really lucky, over the side of the boat, enormous ones. When the water's clear, you can just see for metres down. Yeah, it looks like a tropical beach. Foot. But the icebergs are great, like where they roll, and then they roll like 10, 20 feet out the water. And then the 20 feet of iceberg that's just been 
revealed there's like waterfalls falling off where water's falling from each little crevasse. Yeah. That's just crazy. And, and some of them have got little tide pools in that you just want to swim in or, yeah. or a penguin will be perched on one. Yeah, and the archways, especially when the water beneath them is crystal clear, turquoise blue, like some tropical Caribbean beach. What's your favourite part of the day? What do you most look forward to? What gets you up on those polar dark nights? Just getting on the water, even doing anything. Like we've spent a lot of time in South Cove, which is about 200 metres from the wharf. So this last month, we've spent 35 hours on the water. Th actually, 35 and a half hours. And um, yeah, so we're not going particularly far, but it's just being off station, it's being on the water. I think we're very lucky that most people work and live inside. They only really get out in Antarctica at the weekends. Whereas we're out in it every day. Every single day we're out experiencing Antarctica, doing different things and seeing things that no one ever sees. I was thinking about this last night, that the ROV. Which is remote operated which, vehicle. When we're doing that and surveying the seabed and looking for things. So that take that 100 metre sediment panel that we found the other day. When they installed that, they would have gone down, got to where they wanted to put it, dropped it and then came back up. Installing it's fairly easy. Whereas we've spent hours and hours looking for this thing, exploring the seabed and not finding it. You've got to think that every metre that we explore looking for it is a metre of this planet that no human has ever seen before. Oh, and we're shit. there getting frustrated because it's freezing cold. Like we hit minus 30 wind chill the other day while we were doing it. So we're sat there freezing, looking for this thing, not finding it, getting frustrated. Yet what you're seeing, what we're seeing through this little screen, no one has ever seen before. It's like being in space sometimes, isn't it? it is. And the scenes are just absolutely incredible. So that's what I wanted to move on to. But this is new for you, supporting science with boating logistics. Mm. How do you find that interaction with the new scientific community and assisting with diving and water sampling and remote operated vehicle? It's great. It's good fun. It's like you said, I've never done anything like it before. But this is what I kind of want to make clear to the new boaty that comes in and to anyone listening who would possibly want to come and do this. Boating here isn't technically very difficult. All we're really doing is the basics but it's the basics done right and it's the basics done well and you just apply it in an extreme environment like this doing science it's like the rov that originally was a four-person operation that we've got down to two people that me and you do that on our own but actually all that's involved in that is holding the boat station and i'll be doing that with one hand and i'll be tethering the line or doing the rov tether with the other you'll be driving the rov and it looks super impressive and it looks really cool but actually all i'm doing is holding the boat station and that's the first thing i teach in a power level two probably the first thing that i got taught as a four-year-old from my dad is how to hold the boat still again the elements. So actually the boating itself is really quite simple. It's just the fact that you're dealing with the conditions and where you are that makes it interesting, makes it more difficult. Working with science is really interesting because it's quite simple. It means you can get involved with the science and kind of pick it all up. You're helping out on the water sampling events. You're setting up the Niskin bottles, which essentially collects water at different depths whilst driving the boat, whilst keeping us at the location and then wheeling in the CTD unit as well. Yeah. So. I like diving's really cool. I really, really do enjoy diving. And we have done a lot of it lately, but the diving actually is brilliant but again from like a boating point of view you drive the boat to a gps waypoint you drop a shot line on it as accurately as you can you then drift away from it you hold station while the divers get dressed in and get ready you then re-approach that shot line the divers enter the water you then hold station following the smb throughout the duration of the dive which is the surface marker boy surface marker boy and then at the end you go in and do a man overboard to pick them back up so actually all you're doing is navigating to a gps waypoint holding station and a man overboard Again, skills from power boat level skills two. Skills from power boat level two, very basic skills, but you're doing it in Antarctica and it's, you know, minus 10 or whatever it is. And have you yet had a leopard seal encounter? I can't remember if you had in the summer. Think, whilst uh, divers are in the water. I haven't. You haven't. There was one this summer. So that's also another, another consideration that as yeah. well as these skills being relatively simple, you have to respond to the event of there being a potential predator around that you would then have to put the boat in between the divers and the seal or the orca. And it's spotting it as well. Yeah, like mm. I said, I've probably made it sound 
very easy and it isn't it's actually quite difficult <laughs> yeah i've tried the driving whilst the rov is in the water yeah. and it is extremely difficult i think that you're actually just so used to your job that you can just do it as an instinct thank you and i think that's a level you need to be at to be here because you can't be focusing on what you're doing on the boat you need to be focusing on the changing ice conditions the weather conditions looking for seals exactly. looking for orca you, know, instinctive. you need to be looking after you whilst i'm not concentrating about boating definitely what do you do on bad weather days maintenance mainly maintenance of the boats we've got four boats and considering actually two of them have been in antarctica for over 10 years they're in incredible condition so yes service the engines do gel coat repairs tube repairs paperwork catch up on sleep loads of stuff but yeah mainly maintenance and just looking after everything keeping it all ticking over and you've got your own workspace the boat shed yes got the boat shed which is nice no one ever goes you were right at the end of station right at the southern end just looking onto the wharf having your own phone is really nice as well because there is phone booths in station that you can go in and call home but they're communal so you know i'd imagine if you're in there somebody knocks on the door somebody walks in there's always going to be somebody wanting the phone off you at some point whereas in the boat shed you know i've got my own phone i can sit in there for hours if i wanted to talking to home also working by yourself as well i'm the only boaty here over the winter you set your own jobs you write a list you set your priorities and, and you work for yourself do you enjoy that i do enjoy that well i say i work for myself i do and i don't i work for myself but for you and the team for which the is science. for the science i figure it out quite well but i can imagine some people would struggle with that because on one hand i am my own boss and i do work for myself and i do set my own jobs and i do decide what to do every day but i decide what to do every day based on what you need me to do we are a collective team and that's the thing we have a marine biologist a marine assistant a diving officer and a boating officer but we all have have very different agendas but collectively we come together to achieve the same goal 100% and I think ultimately my job is to provide you with boating to do whatever it is that you need to do and then any of the maintenance any of the servicing any of the upkeep of the fleet that I need to do I fit in around which can actually be really challenging in the summer where you're basically out every single day and you've actually got to still keep on top of all that routine maintenance it's like you need to use the good weather yeah and then uh, yeah. yeah I guess just work extra hours to keep on top of everything yeah and you do you do end up working seven days a week I mean, I had four days off in the first four months that I was here last summer when I first got here because we just had such good weather and we were out every single day doing stuff. There's plenty of opportunities to do what you need to do. You just got to fit it around being on the water. What are your plans for the future? Do you think you'll return to Antarctica? I think so. I love it here. There's two boating officer jobs with bass. One's here, the other's at KEP, so King Edward Point in South Georgia. So my plan is to finish the winter here, and as long as I still enjoy it as much as I do now, go home for a few months and then go to King Edward Point in South Georgia and winter as boating officer there after this as well. I think you'll have two extremely different experiences and then an amazing skill set and stories to come home with. 100%. What do you miss most about being away from home? Family, friends, family people that I haven't seen. I've been here eight months, so I haven't seen them in eight and a half because we had two weeks quarantine in the Falklands before we came here. So, you know, we speak every day, we message every day, we call every now and then. I'm not apart from them because we speak so much, but yeah, if I was to miss anything, it's of course it's them. And we are fortunate and it is actually relatively easy to stay in touch with WhatsApp and internet and phone communication. And I guess being busy and having a pretty clear agenda every day. I don't know about you, but I feel like time does go pretty fast. It flies by. And like the summer especially flies by. Those first four months, I blink like two minutes later, it's the end of summer, everyone's leaving and the ship's gone for the last time and you're into winter. You just lose track of time, which I think is why keeping a diary is so important because I flipped to every page in my diary has a story worth telling in, in my opinion. Every day's got a memory from last summer, but looking back on it now, it's just just a blur. And also it's hard to separate the days because you don't actually change location. You're always in the same place and you're always in the same boating area. 
that's not mm-hmm. giving you any markers of where you are in time. No, so 100%. I agree. Keeping a diary is absolutely crucial. It's been really lovely talking to you and really wish you well for your next boating position at South Georgia. Thank you very much. Here's to next summer. So that concludes an episode with Louis Day. Thank you so much for tuning in and learning more about different roles and how they operate in Antarctic environments. Louis talked about collecting settlement panels from the bottom of the seabed and we'll expand more in another episode because this is a particular science project that I was involved in where we were looking at the colonisation of marine invertebrates on on perspex panels over a five-year period. So got some really exciting work about that. However, this episode was less of a focus on science, but more of a focus on logistics of boating in polar environments. Just to clarify one piece of information, Louis says that the vast majority of science that happens on station is marine science, and that is actually the case during the winter. The meteorologist, Joe Cole, who we will hear from later in this series, is collecting ground measurements every day of what the weather's doing in Antarctica. So we have atmospheric and marine science data collection going on live during the winter. There's also still automated instruments that collect meteorological data and we still have an engineer who also is monitoring other space weather instruments too. I conducted this interview in June 2022 and now more than a year on Louis has fulfilled his dream and is sailing down on the Pharos ship from the Falkland Islands to South Georgia where he will take up the position as a boating officer as he hoped and dreamed. See you next time for another episode of the Ice World podcast.